And this is so refreshing. This is so good. For so long, we've been talking about Christianity, and the key threat here in North America was that it would be seen as just another competing lifestyle. Well, this doesn't look like another competing lifestyle. And in fact, if, if you're looking for something that you know, is, is a good accessory for your lifestyle or something that's going to be a good cultural fit for you, this is going to be about as bad as you can do. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And today, Cameron, I need your help on, you have a good phrase for this. We were just chatting about it, but this is one that might not wrap up in a tidy sense. There are a bunch of categories in life, and this stems from several questions that people have asked me in public Q&A and some things I've been wrestling with personally, where the obligation that you feel to be part of something is fueling something that's a bad idea. Mm. And I know that sounds strange, but let me, I can give you a couple scenarios. So one of these would be like, um, let's look at the famine in Afghanistan right now, or in, pick any you know, country in the world who's, who's being, you know, all sorts of geopolitical consequences, like just, it's complex. And that's probably the starting point on all of these situations. You have a really complicated humanitarian situation. Here's what you know. If we send in resources, I'm saying we as a country or even a mission organization send in country uh, resources, it's going to be captured and used for nefarious purposes. If you don't, millions of children will starve. Uh, same thing with Haiti right now. You look at Haiti, 60% of it is controlled by gangs and the place is on fire, almost literally. I mean, it is a nightmare. And the one easy thing to do would be like, okay, we're not going to send any more resources in there, and this problem will sort itself out. On the other hand, that no hold bars, like well, we're not going to engage, means that a lot of innocent people are going to seriously suffer. You can go to even less extreme versions of that of saying, look, this chaos is going on in my local public school. I'm not going to be part of that anymore, and I'm not going to uh, provide any moral stability to that. Um, okay. Can I go off and do my other thing? Absolutely. Uh, but what about all the people who, what, so what happens to the innocent people, um, is it's, it's a complicated and, and, and I'm sure all the listeners can think of other situations like that, where by doing the right thing, you're fueling the wrong thing, but by not doing the right thing or by not fueling the wrong thing, innocent people suffer. How's that for complicated? Can you sort that out at all or make sense of what I'm trying to say? No, but I can try to add some, <laughs> I, I could try to add some context. Well, maybe I guess, and, I guess, does that category even exist? Am I seeing something that isn't there or is that a actual moral conflict that other people other than me wrestle with knowing what to do with? Right. So can, can, can we solve it? Can I solve it? No. Is it, a, is it, I think a sensible, is it a sensible category? Yes, because you're describing the dilemmas that emerge, genuine dilemmas in a morally complex world. All of the scenarios that you laid out there, Nathan, are, you know, they could be, it sounds like they are examples pulled out of an ethics textbook, but these are all real. Mm -hmm. These are Yeah, real we've all scenarios. done those case studies in our ethics courses of, and then you go through and you take like, well, Kant said this, and you can look at it from John Stuart Mill's perspective and, you know, and just mm -hmm. all of those taste dusty in your mouth when you look at the actual humans involved in them when it goes beyond theoretical. So yeah, it's, yes, it's not like I haven't thought deeply about ethics before. I'm just 
I think a lot of us are like, yeah, but. And well, this touches us very much on our, on just the, the practical side of our lives, because what do we actually do here? When we were talking about this earlier, Nathan, we were talking specifically about Haiti. You said one scenario that people would, you know, well, one way of putting it could be, well, we just close off and let this take care of itself. And of course, that is a chilling euphemism, which, by the way, you were not recommending at all. Just, <laughs> no, yeah, thanks for clarifying that. A, yeah. Yes, as a possible option that people might float out there. But it's a, that's a chilling euphemism for basically allowing you know, the natural, you know, events to unfold naturally within that nation right now where chaos is basically reigning. And then once that has run its bloody horrendous course, try to start over again. Mm -hmm. But of course, we're talking about human beings. We're not talking just about some, you know, this isn't a nature preserve. And so what I, what I had said, and I think the phrase that you the way I phrase this, Nathan, and this is probably what you had in mind, is what do we do as believers now, as Christians, when we are morally bound to lost, what appear to be lost causes? I think that's the way I would phrase it. And let's face it, we are morally bound to causes that appear to us to be lost ones. And that means these are going to be situations where self-sacrifice is going to be required and when where the value of an individual human life is you know not just I don't even want to use words like individual human life that that sounds like sociological terminology here where we need to be if we're captivated by a vision of human beings all human beings as made in the image of God it means that they are going to be worth what will appear to many other people to be outrageous risks. Mm-hmm. You know, that's wild because risk is exactly the word that was popping into my mind. And I think the tension here is that there are entire professions and all of us are subconsciously running a lot of our operating systems of our minds on mitigating risk. Like that is our default modern, I mean, and and that's wise in so many categories, but it slams into a lot of what Jesus teaches. Well, I think so what I where I would like to go here as we move forward is is talk about the balance between risk and wisdom as we as we move forward. It can appear to be almost a kind of tightrope and, you know, hint hint, here's a well, here's just a foreshadowing. I think navigating that ta- that territory or striking that balance of risk and wisdom requires nothing less than inspiration from the Holy Spirit. But well, before we get before we get there though, I wanted to this this came to mind recently as I was thinking about in the wake of of, of COVID-19. COVID-19 is with us to stay in some in some shape or form it seems. But certainly we do we are so COVID-19 is not over per se, but we are through some of what we certainly seem to be through some of the worst of it in terms of just the total upheaval and and uncertainty that was unleashed. But I was talking about this with a friend the other day, and it was it was a very convicting reminder about how, if you look into the history of the church, 
you're going to see a lot of really what appears to be really reckless behavior on the part of clergy in times of plague. Mm -hmm. Because these were the people, basically, they had they had a view of death. Death was not the worst was not the worst case scenario in their minds, and so they would go and minister to the sick, fully aware of the fact that it would likely be a death sentence for them. They would go and and bring the elements to the sick. They would they would perform communion for for the sick in t- in times of the, the Black Plague. Many of these pastors would do that, and they w- they didn't stop the care. And also, even during COVID nineteen, there were several. There were there were some stories actually about clergy who continued to do their in person visits and care and and many of them did con- I mean they did contract COVID nineteen some of them even succumbed but so and there was a lot of talk I mean that that was received as a scandal nowadays usually when those when those reports when I saw those reports at least the those priests and those pastors were represented as being grossly irresponsible and reckless and they were ta- they were seen as taking unreasonable risks. And so that was just an interesting story a, a, a diff- an interesting contrast in the way that we look at risk, you know, of the ways in which we've looked at risk. And of course nowadays as modern people we are one one way to put this is not, there's nothing wrong with being careful and and say and safe per se, but we are, I would say, addicted to security. In fact, I would go so far as to call security a pretty entrenched American idol. Well, and it is a wonderful thing when you have it, it but it's not it a wonderful yep. thing when you have it at the violation of the teaching of Christ if you're a Christian. So I I do think that comfort and security are two of the fundamental goals of our culture. However, we have to recognize that Jesus prioritized service over comfort and hospitality over security. And that is the fundamental tension that we live in as Christians in our culture. So those are um, the, so, but it's not, so it's just, so that is alive and well. I think you're right on that. However, when we get back to this being morally obligated to do things that seemingly support lost causes, um, is is some of that like well we're not that great at deciding as humans what an what a lost cause actually is like we just don't have enough of a view of the final yes. picture first of all to say because i mean let's talk about some lost causes in scripture oh hey there's this mm-hmm. guy beating himself running around naked in the tombs yelling you know demon possessed people were pretty far out there on the lost cause uh you know and those are people the apostle paul uh, you know, pick your pick your favorite lost cause in Scripture. Is, I mean, Scripture is a story of the lost causes being redeemed. Uh, your life can be that too. So first of all, we just don't have the ability to know the outcome of that. So that's, I think, part of the reason why. So on one way, the things that we're asked to do are a risk. On the other hand, they're actually in an investment in a different type of economy. So we might yes. be being asked to give money to something that we know is going to help somebody but also cause another problem. But if you're doing that out of Christian obedience and the Lord has a plan, then you're saying, I'm investing in the spiritual well-being of this person, even if this doesn't make economic sense right now. And that is hard for us to separate out. Yes, and notice that I, I worded this very carefully. We feel we are. What do we do when we are morally obligated to causes that appear to be lost ones? 
Okay. So that appear yeah. word is really crucial there. It's doing a lot of work for me. If you had it in a sentence form, I would italicize it. <laughs> because we don't, you're right, we, we don't have the full insight. For us, yeah, we might judge, we might judge many people, many places, many institutions to be completely, complete lost causes based on the evidence that we have in front of us and what we see, but there are factors we're, we're not aware of. So there's that as well. But also, the way we look at risk as Christians is going to differ quite drastically from the way the world does. So the way, I mean, outside the church and just the normal circumstances of life, most people look at risk in terms of possible harm to you. And the ultimate risk, of course, the worst thing that could happen to you is death. Christians don't believe that, at least on our better days <laughs> on paper, when we're in we touch. Don't. Right. <laughs> on paper, we don't. And when we're actually in touch with reality, we recognize that death is not the worst thing that could happen to us. And in fact, when you're, when you're in the arms of Christ, no ultimate harm can befall you in the sense of nothing can ultimately separate you from your Lord. Your salvation is, is secure. If, However, given the example of Jesus, we know that might not be a comfy spot to be at all times. No. Well, so this side of eternity, that's not necessarily a comfy, comfy spot to be. But the, the more serious risk to you for your ultimate well-being and health is to be alienated from your Lord. And when you're serving him, even if that entails, yes, temporary physical harm, possibly even death, these are the items that the Apostle Paul has the gall to call momentary light affliction. And we can take <laughs> that seriously when it's coming from a guy like him who <laughs> I think Paul's suffering resume is is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, go read 2 Corinthians 11 sometime. Yeah, he'll go he'll give you that little list of all of the floggings and all of the various I mean, yeah, stonings and and of course Paul's ultimate ultimate demise. But even even so when we when 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 our salvation is secure, we're able to we're able to take those risks. And again, our way of evaluating that risk is going to look different from, from the rest of the world, but it does not mean we're reckless. So there, there is a place for, for wisdom here as well. So yeah. even when there's, I mean, the complexity of this is, is rich. When you're dealing with somebody, let's say a person in your life who in the eyes of the world would be a lost cause. And you mentioned in passing, you know, cases of demon possessed people in scripture Let's just state for the record that there are plenty of people today who are demon-possessed as well. well. We don't and want to make it sound like a historical, yeah, thing for people to be messed up. Yeah. And so, but I mean, now, but this goes into, but there are various deceptive, you know, modern sort of costumes that come along with possession, but it remains with us to this day. And we can see people who basically have, have gone beyond all reason and beyond the pale in some way. Well, beyond medically medically solvable problems, for yep. sure. Absolutely. And we have ways of psychologizing that away. And I'm very, very grateful, by the way, for the world of counseling and psychology, for the insights it yields. But there remain conundrums of, of human nature that can't be fully solved by medicine. We, we can all admit that. But what I'm going to say here is that when you have somebody like that in your life, you know that... 
There are times where you're deeply involved, but there also may come very difficult seasons where you need to take a step back and set boundaries. And this person is, in a sense, released for a season because there's no more you can do. And if you are actively providing aid or help in some way, this may actually be causing the person further harm by enabling. We know that there are seasons where that, so I'm just, I just want to bring that in here to say that there is a richness of complexity here and there is a wisdom that enters in. It's not going to be in some neat formula because we're dealing with persons here, but there's room for careful thinking here as well. There's room for strategy here as well. There is room for, again, wisdom and care as we as we navigate all of this. I, well, I want to, so I'm pushing against recklessness, okay, but not yeah. against taking risks. Right, and I'm glad you're highlighting that. There's also, though, a song that I don't like. It's pretty popular that uses the phrase "the reckless love of God," and I don't think God's yes. love is reckless. Um, and so that's one we don't sing, uh, just because that's not. I don't think how God operates. Is it is it extravagant love? Is it um, unilateral most of the time. Absolutely. You can use all those words that you want, but reckless isn't quite right. And to your point, I mean, Jesus does talk about not casting your pearls before swine. That's there. However, what I want to ask you or just drill into a little bit here is, okay, let's use the prophet Jeremiah. There's a degree of revelation where he knows what's going to happen. He knows that Israel is going to get hauled off into captivity. And his job as a prophet of God is to stick it out and go with them into captivity, even though his job is to prophesy, telling them, change your way so you don't have to do this, knowing that they won't change the way and they're still going to have to do it. He's going to suffer collectively with his people for their disobedience to the message that he's giving them from God. And so there's that moral obligation that he mm -hmm. has to continually mm -hmm. be mm -hmm. part of a what appeared to be a lost cause. And for that generation, kind of was. Um, so there's that sense there where he had like a real clarity of like, this is what God wants me to do. Therefore, mm -hmm. what I'm doing isn't reckless. For the rest of us, if you're like, hey, I'm part of a group of people and I know they're all going to be captured and hauled off to another country and this is going to be brutal. The sensible thing to do would be like, hightail it out of there. <laughs> you know, Jeremiah has that window of opportunity to leave before uh, everything goes sideways. But it wasn't reckless. It was a response to revelation that he knew how to do that. And so I think the reason that's important to distinguish is because we're not saying if it doesn't make sense, do that. And that's what pleases God. Um, but it is very much the case that God might be asking me to do something that doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of other people. And the words that I said there are all very similar, but the way that they're ordered is very important. Um, and so just to balance that out there of saying, because there are things that we continue to invest in or continue trying to do way past the time where it's a good idea or it's even possible. Uh, sometimes I would be involved in a argument with my brothers or something or trying to justify something that was going nowhere. And my mom would use the phrase, when your horse is dead, get off. Um, you know, <laughs> stop, stop trying to ride that thing. Like that's over. It's done for time to move off and either find another horse or go walk, you know, like that's, it's, it's not going anywhere. So I think there are times in which as Christians, we can stick to some, institutions and ideas far longer than we need to. Uh, but it all then comes down to the degree of revelation that I have of what is God uniquely asking of me to do in this situation. And shockingly enough, 
there's far more biblical clarity on that if you look at the teachings of Jesus as divine commands than we would think. Uh, so there is a pretty high call to go into and to embrace difficult situations in a way that, um, I, so is, is obedience to God a moral, I'm, I'm struggling with the right words here. Answer this question is because it, it doesn't sound proper to me to say that obedience to God is a moral obligation. Mm. I, I guess, I mean, it is, but it seems like then I'm elevating the category of moral beyond like the divine command. So it's not like there's a third category there. I don't know. So I, I just um, sort me out on my ramblings there because it, it, it seems like we do actually have more clarity on this uh, than we would like to admit sometimes. Yeah, I think we need to say a few words about the prophetic imagination of Christians here because so the other day at an event that we were at, Nathan, our actually our regional fundraiser here in Georgia. This was fun. Nathan and his wife had to stay with with me. And they were they were in this this they were in my they got to stay in my studio. Came came to town. That's right. That's right. I e hosted my, by the McAllisters. That's right. I e my studio, i.e. the the study, i.e. the guest bedroom or the spare bedroom above the garage, which is where I'm coming to you. I'm here's where that's where I'm broadcasting from this very moment. Oh, this snazzy but highfalutin we, setup we have. Oh yes, very snazzy. But as we were at that event, I said that responsible Christian action looks like this. You are you are acting as a Christian, you're acting on the basis of the world as it is, but also as it will one day be. You have to hold those two yeah. in tension. And so, yes, you look at the world as it is. You know, this is a sensible, ordered universe in a sens sensible, ordered world. And there's, for all of the difficulties that we experience as nations, I mean, we're talking about the chaos that's erupted in Haiti. There is, when you look at most of our nations and you look at our day-to-day -day lives, there is a remarkable sense of stability to a good deal of human civilization. You know, we have, we do have, we have law and order and arrangements. There are deviations, of course, there always will be. This is a fallen world, but there is a, there's a remarkable order and arrangement to it. And scripture is not silent, by the way, on, on the authority structures of this world and the Christian comportment to those authority structures, right? But we know also that as Christians, we're, we're members of the new creation. And so we're citizens of heaven now here on this in this temporary yeah. realm. So can, can I can I interrupt you there a second because this is an important thing that is probably one of the key sticking points and and maybe people don't think through this but this is a problem. So yeah, we're citizens of the, of heaven. There's a future coming kingdom. Um we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christ taught us to pray that. And we love to talk about the already and the not yet. So there's that reality of the world that you're speaking of. And then there's the, the fullness of the thing that isn't yet there. I think the confusion then comes for a lot of people is so exactly what is the perceived outcome of our action now? And there have been theological trends in the past where like, look, if we can all just get all the Christians together and all the people of the world together and sing the right songs and vote the right way, 
we're going to establish the peace and the perfection of Christ. Nobody would come right out and say that, but right. Yeah, you know, it's it's yep. kind of in the water, as it were. It's it's very helpful, but you're always setting yourself up for disappointment when you do that. Yeah. I think the the intermediate way here and the thing that Christ modeled for us is that when you seek first the kingdom, which is a great line because Jesus said it. So there's your priority. <laughs> seek first the kingdom um, and his righteousness that what you're doing when you pursue the Christ-like way in a morally complex situation is you're not hoping primarily that the Christ-like, that your Christ-like witness will ultimately solve that problem immediately. But what you're doing is you're testifying to the nature of the coming kingdom. Yeah. So you're bearing witness. You're bearing witness to the character of the, the kingdom. You're pointing to something else. And the way in which you do that is likely disruptive enough that other people will be curious about why you're doing that. Or you might just die, which is very much on the menu for what might be asked of you as a Christian. But we get into these weird cycles of despair as a church when we think, oh, look, we spent 15 years investing in this mission, and now a gang just burned it to the ground. Mm -hmm. What did we accomplish? Not the right way to look at that. Uh, it, it could be that the Lord is asking you to build something that will be burned down in a year uh, in some other country. And it could just be the right thing to do, A, because you don't see the outcome of it. The Lord knows. And B, because you seek first what the right thing to do is, and all these other things will be added to you. Um, so I, I think that's just a, a thing that I want to really make clear here is that we are not trying. Oftentimes the Lord does pull through and, and brings about results in unexpected ways. And we praise him for that. But we have to recognize that primarily what we're doing with our action, our behavior, our commitment, our quote risk taking is testifying to the nature of the kingdom, not trying to force the kingdom into a morally complex uh political situation uh in afghanistan or yemen or haiti or pick your state mm -hmm. um so i in one hand that really intensifies our commitment to action because we have to say well then our behavior needs to be pointing to and testifying and giving witness to what we know to be good and true and beautiful on the other hand it also takes a little bit of the sting out of it when our best laid plans don't work out because we need to recalculate exactly what our primary plan was in order in the first place. So uh, I just wanted to interrupt you there and put that in between the bookends mm -hmm. of, I think, a, a place that gets morally confusing for a lot of Christians. Yes. And that's why eschatology <laughs> is such an important and practical aspect of Christian thinking, the final yeah. outcome. Because if, yeah, if you're, if you're seeking to establish, and again, we don't say it in these words, but if we follow some of our our thinking, some of our despairs to their logical conclusion, what we often find is that we're looking for short-term advantages here and now, and we're looking for some version of paradise on earth, which is utopianism. It's not Christianity. Mm -hmm. And we're making the critical mistake of, well, we're mistaking this world for our permanent home, which it is not. So we, we do need to be in touch with the fact that this, this world is not permanent. And we need constant reminders of that. And we also need constant reminders. I need constant reminders of the fact that my Christian convictions and my bearing witness to the truth that I'm called to in word and deed is often not going to bring me short-term advantages. Now, see, it's worth, I think, bringing in 
the conspicuous fact that in the not too distant past here in North America, it did come with some some real social advantages. And I, I think that is something that's that's really changing. And it's worth pointing that out. Now, that has not been the case around the world for in most nations, by the way, for where I grew up in, in, you know, Western Europe, that was certainly not the case. We weren't actively perse- persecuted for being Christians, but there was no social advantage that came along with it. Mm-hmm. But in the past here in the United States, again, Christianity has held some very influential, well, you know, Christianity, you know, self, self-identifying Christianity has held some influential force, right? Some persuasive force. But as that that goes away, those social advantages are starting to wane also. Now we're starting to to see what it looks like to bear witness, and there's no short-term advantages to it. A lot of us are, are, are saying, wait, is this just, is this all futile? Is this wasted effort? The Lord might be calling me to build some, what I perceive to be grand project, and it will have served its purpose well, even if it comes crashing down. And that, in order to do that, we have to have a deepened, more mature vision of the world as it is, and then the world as it as it will one day be, and to kind of rekindle that prophetic imagination. I mean, Jeremiah, I'm sure, Jer- I mean, I think we can say with some certainty, the weeping prophet felt that he was wasting his breath. <laughs> <laughs> and, but he was not. And his testimony stands to this day. Now, Jeremiah is an exceptional case. I'm not saying that we're all, you know, (laughs) Jeremiah. But I am saying, though, that when you're bearing witness to the kingdom and in whatever small ways we are called to do so in our our day-to-day lives, it's not a wasted effort. Even if we don't always see the fruits of our labors in the, you know, in the immediate future, and and we won't always, you know, this is, this is the way life works this side of eternity. The, the Lord a- actually uses our work in ways that far exceed our understanding, but recognizing that is going to be an act of faith a so lot of times. Sometimes yeah. we do see it, but yeah. a lot so, of times we don't. So the I think some people could listen to you say prophetic imagination. I like that phrase without recognizing that that is immensely practical. Extremely practical. And the the practicality of that comes from the fact that we do have a broad vision of what's coming, but we don't always know how to connect the dots of that broad vision to exactly where we are. It's kind of like a connect the dots. Like, you know where the next dot is, but you don't know what the picture is going to look like until you get all the dots connected throughout time, right? Um, Where there's a sense of which we don't always need to know the big picture in order to know the right thing to do. It would be like coming across somebody who's bleeding and thinking, well, I should help them stop the bleeding, but first let's figure out, you know, how did this happen? Right. No, do that the other way around. Stop the bleeding and then figure out how the car accident happened, right? So it's there, there's a sense in which I don't always know why bad things happen. I don't know the reason for pain, but I very often do know exactly how the Lord wants me to respond to pain, you know, so in, in the lives of other people. And so like that prophetic imagination contextualizes the chaos that we see to know, for us to know that there is a meaning, but it also means that we trust the one who knows the meaning enough that when we don't know the meaning, we can still be obedient to the breadcrumbs and the dots that we're supposed to connect in our own lives and in the, our own context. So there's this radical whipsaw back and forth between the the, the earthy, gritty, um, 
brokenness and beauty of the physical world and the depth and complexity of human relationships around us right now on the day that you're listening to this and the beautiful vision of the blessed hope, right? Um, and I guess well, I'm to- saying what we're saying here is it's okay to not know how all the dots are connected in between those two things as long as we're confident that the Lord does. Yes, and that's going to be an article of faith because we can't see the full, full picture, but we trust in our Lord. And also, just to go back to Haiti, I think this is this could be a, a fitting point of closure, but we, we know this is the case, though, that, and this has happened in the past, actually, in the nation of Haiti, but let's say you you have missionaries who who remain and and many of them have and many of them will perish in the process and probably you know will be murdered presumably you know when you have a gang member for instance who sees that and then ends up becoming <laughs> turning to Christ as a result of seeing that self-sacrificial love on the part of the missionaries who are murdered. And this, I mean, again, this is this is not a hypothetical. This has happened, and this will happen again. Okay, is that an enticing picture? Is that success in worldly in worldly terms? No, it is not. But is that a prophetic picture of the love of God for even the most destitute of souls? Right. And I'm thinking when I say destitute of souls, I'm thinking of the gang member here. I'm not thinking of the victims in in the nation. I'm thinking of the the people who are perpetrating these crimes are people in, I would say, a a, a place of spiritual destitution that's as as drastic as it gets. But they are not beyond the reach of Christ. And when somebody looks at a life that comes to an end like that, one way to read it would be what a waste, what a reckless decision, what an unwise risk. Another way would be to see, a prophetic way of looking at it would be able to see this was a key ingredient that the Lord used in reaching somebody who was as lost as could be. Now, is it always, you know, this is one, this is one specific example, and, it, and admittedly, it's an extreme one. There's always a risk in using extreme examples, but it's not hypothetical. It is a real one. But it's meant to, to serve as a picture of what of how a Christian life, a, the self-sacrificial character of a Christian life, the cruciform pattern of the Christian life, is a prophetic witness to the way the world, to the coming world, to Christ's kingdom, to the way the, the world will one day be. It recognizes the injustice of the world as it is right now and bears witness to that injustice, takes great risks in the name of the love of God first and then the love of neighbor, but also testifies to the world as it will one day be. These are sobering thoughts, of course, but I think we're more and more in a position these days to think about Christianity along these lines. And this is so refreshing. This is so good. For so long, we've been talking about Christianity, and the key threat here in North America was that it would be seen as just another competing lifestyle. Well, 
this doesn't look like another competing lifestyle. And in fact, if if you're looking for something that, you know, is is a good accessory for your lifestyle or something that's going to be a good cultural fit for you, this is going to be about as bad as you can do, right? <laughs> but this is pointing to a whole way of life and it's a way of acting on the basis of the world as it is and as the world will one day be. So we do hope that this meandering conversation has been helpful to you. We hope that it's stimulated some some thinking and we hope you'll, that, that you'll continue to think on this in the oncoming week. And we do appreciate you listening and sticking with us here. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.